Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Father, we thank you for the call upon our lives as believers to live with a heart of humility and service. Lord, we surely know that these are virtues that the world uh, sees very little of and appreciates very little. And so we're to be salt and light among unbelievers. I think of how Jesus in the upper room with his disciples knelt and took the basin of water and a towel and he washed their feet. And he said, I've set you an example that you go and do likewise as I have shown you. And he went on to say, you will be blessed if you do these things. Lord, help us to be servants in Jesus' name. That people would know why we're serving them. That it would give us that platform to to preach the gospel. To help them see love in action. Father, I pray that we would be a service-oriented church. That we would lift high the name of Jesus. He said if he be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. So that it would all be about him, not us. That we would lift high his name, preach your word. And minister to others. The writer of Hebrews says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As is the habit of some. But we're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And all the more as we see the day approaching. God I pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Don McCullough writes in Waking from the American Dream, he says, During World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal. And so Winston Churchill called together labor leaders to enlist their support. At the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parable which he thought perfectly described an event that he most surely could envision would take place in Piccadilly Circus after the war. First, he said, would come the sailors who had kept the sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come the pilots who had driven the German Air Force out of the sky. 
And then last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. And someone would cry from the crowd, and where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 tongues would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the cold. Not all jobs are glamorous. Not all are visible. But the people with their faces to the coal help any organization to fulfill its ministry. Then I think of the famous orchestra conductor Leonard Bernstein who was asked on one occasion what the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play is. And with quick wit, he responded, he said, well, that's easy. Second fiddle is the most difficult to play. They said, what do you mean, second fiddle? He said, well, I can easily find a first violinist, somebody to sit first chair on cello or clarinet or oboe or trumpet. But to find somebody who will play second or the third part with as much enthusiasm and gusto, he said, now there's the challenge. And yet if we don't have second and third, we won't have harmony. And if we don't have harmony, we won't have music. Serving others, humbling ourselves. That's definitely not popular in our culture today. Our culture values strength and power and prestige and money. A person is not judged by the number of people he serves, but by the number of people that he exercises authority over. That's what the world values. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, things are going to be different. He said on one occasion, the Gentiles love to lord it over you. But in the kingdom of God, the one who is last of all and servant of all is the greatest. And so Jesus took the value system of the world and turned it upside down. He stood it on its ears. And said, I'm going to show you a better way. It's not the first that's the greatest, it's the last. It's not the one who exercises authority or control, it's the one who serves. And that's what he teaches in this passage that I want us to see unfolded before us today. And and we're going to see that humility and service is what God both looks for and what He has promised to bless. First thing I want you to see with me is that true greatness is not achieved through selfish ambition. There in verse 33 and 34 it says, They came to Capernaum and when He was in the house He asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now I want you to go back to verse 30 and look with me a moment what he was talking about in verse 30. He had spoken to them there about his impending death. He was going to be rejected and crucified and as he spoke those words they did not fully understand. 
Now from there they embarked upon a journey. They began walking to a little town in the northern regions of Galilee by the name of Capernaum. And during the journey to Capernaum, there was a a bit of a spat going on between these grown men. They were arguing about who was going to be the chief among them, who was going to uh, fulfill that first place, be the greatest among them. I suppose after Jesus' teaching about his death, they were thinking that something big was about to happen. He had taught them about his death, burial, and resurrection, and his coming kingdom. And so other places in the Gospels clarify for us what these men began thinking in their minds. They thought that Jesus was going to right then and there overthrow the Roman yoke, the Roman rule over Israel, and he was going to set up his kingdom on earth right then and there. And so with Jesus talking about dying, they must have been thinking, okay, we're getting really close to all of this about to to, uh, to being about to happen and they were thinking when that happens what about me what about us where is our place going to be where are we going to serve and so they began jockeying for position we know that on one occasion James and John even got their mama involved I mean who can say no to a mama right And so they had their mother come and say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my boys sit on your left and one of them sit on your right? Now, folks, lest we become overly critical of them, let's remember there's something about human nature that is filled with selfish ambition. And I want to tell you where that does not come from. It does not come from how God created us to be there in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the picture in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God had created that perfect environment and put man and woman in that environment. And in verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image. A reference to the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I can assure you there is no jealousy, there's no envy, there's no rivalry or competition between the members of the Godhead. The members of the Godhead working in complete unity. We see that Jesus, while he was on on earth in his earthly ministry, he said, I came to do the will of my Father. And in John 14 through 16, as he was talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, he said, the Holy Spirit will testify of me. And so the members of the Trinity working in perfect unison with one another, no jealousy, no competition, no rivalry, None of them, of course, saying who will be first. The Godhead, all personalities equal. And then we know what happened there in Genesis 3. Satan came into the picture and he introduced that different element. And it it really expresses what Satan was like because we know that there was a day that Satan was an angel and, and he was jealous apparently over the worship and service that was given to God and he wanted that for himself. And so he fell from heaven. 
Ezekiel 28 says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And we know what he's about to say about the king of Tyre can't just simply be about a human. It says, Say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O garden cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud. Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You see, that describes how the devil was. I want to be first. I want to be in charge. I want to get all the attention. And so that's immediately the seeds of discord that he began sowing beginning there in Genesis 3. Satan wants us following his will. He wants God's people competing and arguing and fighting and and pointing fingers and, and blaming one another. And we must admit he's pretty good at his job because Paul said to the Corinthians that if you keep going this way, devouring one another, you're going to end up destroying each other. Jesus told a story about this desire to be top dog when he looked at what some of the Pharisees were doing. He gave gave a, a parable, a teaching on one occasion about when somebody would uh, invite his friends to a wedding banquet. And we would assume this would be a very important banquet and a lot of important guests coming. And we know how they would set up the tables oftentimes in like a big capital U shape. And and the host would have his seat right there. And and, and the, the chief seats for the most honored guest would be on his left and on his right. And Jesus noticed how with many of the Pharisees, they would walk in a back door and, and you know, they'd be shaking hands and kissing babies and all that coming in uh, to that dinner and they would see the, the outlay there and some of them, no doubt, they thought themselves to be pretty important and they would come up and have a seat in those chief seats. Jesus said, don't do that. Because somebody more important than you might walk in that door And then the guest of honor taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, pal, would you mind moving back there? Hey, buddy, come up here and take this. And then you're going to be humiliated. Wouldn't it be a lot better just to come in and not assume anything that it's supposed to be about you? Just not assume anything like that at all. And just take the last seat, the least seat. And then the master of ceremonies would look back there and see you and say, what are you doing back there? And and he'd say, you come on up here. I want you up here beside me. And then you would be honored instead of humiliated. 
You know, I was thinking about this. It's, it's, uh, it's easy in an election year to see all of the various candidates, both sides, uh, tooting their own horn. Everybody touting their own accomplishment. Everybody aiming for that top seat. Everybody says, you know what, if elected, I'll do this or I'll do that or I'll do that. And I mean, just on and on and on they go. And I guess to some extent we need to see that. We need, I mean, we need to see what somebody's foreign policy will be. What their domestic policy will be and economics. I tell you what I'd do. I sure, I sure wouldn't put a bunch of politicians together on economics. You know, I'd get some of the be- best and brightest CEOs and business leaders around the country. And I'd say to these ladies and gentlemen, I mean some of the best and brightest we have in the country. I'd say you... you you got to develop a plan. I think you'd do the same. But everybody wants to say, what? Well, no, I'm going to do it my way. I think of back when we built these buildings on campus. There's a mantra among pastors and staff members. Pastors pretty well know you build a building and you leave the church. You build a building and you resign because time you get through the building program, everybody's so mad at one another, you get in on dedication Sunday and not a whole lot of celebration. And so what you're building, you're building for the next guy. Just get ready. You're, 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 you're going to build a building and leave. And I thought, nope, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm not going to do it that way. And so when we put the building committee together, put people on it like Carol Taylor. I mean, what in the world? Somebody built, been in building business all his life. What am I going to teach him? Michael Burdett, who goes around designing and helping build Harris Teeters. What am I, I going to teach somebody like that? An Elliot Batson with finances and spreadsheets. What am I going to teach him about that? And so some folks in the church, that's their giftedness. We'll let them be that. Steering committee. In some of the meetings we had with contractors and subs, believe it or not, I know that it's hard for you to realize some of those meetings, though, I didn't even open my mouth. <laughs> now that's hard to imagine, isn't it? But what's everybody want to say today, whether it's business, politics, family, church, community, school, everybody wants to be able to say, oh no, it's going to be about me. I'm going to do it this way. Here's what I'm going to do. In competition and jealousy and envy and rivalry, that's pride. Pride creates an atmosphere of resentment. Why? Because we start asking, well, why is he getting that job? Why is she getting that job? Why is he getting the bonus? Why is she getting that promotion? And so it creates an atmosphere of resentment. It creates also division. Who does she think she is? Who does does he think he is? Does he think he's better than me? And so everybody starts choosing up sides. Worst of all, pride deceives. It leads us to believe others are supposed to be thinking of us. Pride kills marriages. Pride damages work environments. Destroys churches. Worst of all, it destroys the the very heart of the individual himself. 
We know better, but we do it anyway so oftentimes. These guys knew better. And, and that's why when they get into the house, Jesus asked them about it. They were silent. You see, they'd been walking on the way, and you would assume Jesus was going on up ahead, probably leading the way down some narrow trail. And, and they get into the house, and, and, and they'd been discussing and arguing about something, and, and they thought it was just among themselves. They get in the house. Jesus takes a seat. He assumes the posture of a teacher back then. He says, guys, what were y'all discussing on the way? He was southern, you know. What were y'all discussing on the way? <clears throat> silence. William Barclay calls it the silence of shame. I like that. They're caught. They're embarrassed now. They've been discovered. They've been found out. They, they know. They must have instinctively known. That that's not supposed to be the attitude, the spirit of a follower of Christ. They've messed up. And Jesus uses it as the occasion to teach a lesson. That's what I want you to see secondly. True greatness is achieved through humility and service. Begin reading with me again in verse 35. It says, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see something here. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning there in verse 1, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ. By the way, that word in the Greek text, if. The way it's translated there in context, it's a word that can be translated since. In fact, that's how many English translations translate this verse. Since there is encouragement in Christ, because in, indeed there is. It's, it's not as though there's a question back and forth. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. So since there is encouragement in Christ and, and, and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, aren't you glad those are things that God does in our hearts? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now listen to verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. By the way, in one of my premarital counseling sessions with couples, this is one of the passages we study. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others equal to yourself. Is that what it says? Count others equal to you. Not what it says, is it? Count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
And, and then Paul, beginning in verse 5, he gives what scholars refer to as the Christ hymn. The Christ hymn it runs from verses 5 down through verse 11. Scholars believe that what Paul is doing in these verses is quoting a well-known hymn in the first century. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but they see some evidence of that. And, and, and so what Paul is going to do is illustrate the attitude that he has just said ought to be among us. We do that in preaching, don't we? We will, we, will, we will read verses and we'll give an illustration. We'll put the principles out there and then what will we do? We will illustrate what we're talking about. And that's what Paul is doing. Who's the greatest, when it comes to humility and service, who's the greatest example of all? Well, Jesus. And so he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't grasp his godhood and say, I'm not going down there to earth to save that bunch of bums. He didn't grasp a hold of his divinity like that. He came and... I mean, he wasn't born as a prince into an emperor's household. He was born to a, a young virgin. Not, didn't even have a room available. In, in, a, in a stable. The sovereign God of the universe. I mean, in his birth, you, you can't get any lower than that even in his birth. He once said to people who wanted to follow him, one guy came up and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. He said, foxes of the, of the uh, uh, fields have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Humility. He humbled himself and emptied himself even to the point of death on a cross. And what did God do? God exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we do? So oftentimes we want to exalt ourselves. God humbles us. We humble ourselves. God exalts us. I think, you know, God's got a pretty good ability to do that, doesn't he? To humble those who walk in pride. To exalt those who work in, walk in humility. I mentioned a, a moment ago we're going to study on Wednesday nights Daniel. I think of Daniel, uh, I think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He was that Babylonian king. And in that vision that Daniel received or that, that, uh, that he communicated there in chapter 2, the head of gold in the statue, gold, it goes from gold to silver to bronze to iron and clay. But gold, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold. 
He must have felt pretty good about himself. And the Bible tells us that one day he was walking out on his terrace and he looked all out over his kingdom and he said, my, 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 look at what I've done. Look at what I've built by my power and by my wisdom. And the Bible says at that moment God took the kingdom away from him. And God sent him a spirit that he was basically like a madman living like an animal out in the fields. And by the way, there is, even in contemporary times, there's, there's a disease that describes what Nebuchadnezzar faced. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and acknowledged that God is God most high and we're nothing without him. It wasn't until he acknowledged that that God gave him the kingdom back. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God has ways of reversing things. To illustrate this, Jesus put a child in their midst. Now why a child? A number of reasons I think. But we need to understand first of all that in the ancient world children had no clout. Now granted, I know it's different today. Adult Sunday school classes will meet out under a tree or in a stairwell so their kids can have the best space. But it used to didn't be that way. Children were kind of out of sight, out of mind. They were to be seen, not heard. And so first of all, Jesus is pointing out that we're to serve who would have been considered even the least significant. The least of these, my brethren. And a child would have illustrated that in ancient times. The least of these. What's your attitude in serving the least of these? I want you to think in your minds right now, maybe some famous person or somebody with big position and title. Maybe somebody out in the news or something, their sports world. What if? What if they... Somehow or another called you this week and you answered your cell phone and hello? And it's somebody, that person that you really put up on a pedestal and they said, you know what, I've heard about you and I want you to help me do such and such. Man, you'd hang up the phone and you'd instantly get about serving that person, right? Because, I mean, they're high and mighty, they're famous, they're rich. How'd they know me? How'd they call upon me? Yeah, boy, I'm going to do what he wants me to do. But how about the least of these? Somebody with zero clout. A nobody. I mean, they're not a member of who's who. They'd be lucky to even make the list of who's not. And they call you say, I need help with something. Would you handle those cases differently? Jesus said that the true attitude of humility, the true attitude of a servant's heart will be seen in how you minister to even the least of these. And a child would symbolize that. 
I think another reason he put a child before him. When you serve a child, nobody in their right mind thinks in serving a child they're going to get something in return. I mean, that child's not going to sit down and write you a check. If they did, you wouldn't want it. And they're not going to pay you. They're not going to advance your promotion or career or your name or any of that. They're not, you're serving a child. A child can't do anything for you in return. And Jesus is saying that's how we need to serve. Not expecting anything in return. No hidden motives. We're to serve from the heart even if we on this earth don't receive any pats on the back from it. It is enough to know simply that God knows and God notices. He told another parable about this that seems rather harsh to some people but it's the principle that we need to understand. He told a parable about a slave coming in from the fields. Before he can get any rest for himself he takes care of the household, he takes care of the master and then he's able to finally relax. Jesus said, what's the attitude of the servant to be? Is he to think, look at me, where's my recognition, where's my thanks? Jesus said, no, that servant has only done what he was supposed to do that's all wow sounds harsh but you see what Jesus is saying we're to to serve if nobody notices it's our duty and responsibility to serve it's what we're supposed to be doing you don't have to have your arm twisted you're supposed to do it it's your duty and responsibility as a child of God and it is enough to know that God notices And when we serve this way, we've only done what God asks of us. We shouldn't expect some type of confetti to all of a sudden fall from the ceiling. God will give rewards one day. And so we're to serve purely, no hidden motives. Well, I want to close by answering a question that somebody might be asking. Somebody might be saying, I'm not sure I like that. I kind of like the recognition in the world. I kind of like the pats on the back. I like the earthly rewards. I, I sort of like that competition to the top. Why should I be a servant? I want people serving me. Why should I be last? I want to be first. Well, you know what's at stake here? Following Jesus. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said you want, to be, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be the last of all and the servant of all. It's my way or Jesus' way. You know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord and confess Him with their lips. People all over the nation do that, all over the world. Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Obedience. Are we going to follow Christ or are we just going to talk about following Christ? Christ said you want to be great in his kingdom, be the last of all and the servant of all. And he illustrated that himself by taking that basin of water and a towel and he stooped down and he washed the disciples' feet. 
Which way do you want it? If we say, boy, I want the power, I want the recognition, I want the control, I want people to serve me, then what we should not say is I'm a follower of Jesus. Because you see, that's the world's way. You know one thing I'm greatly encouraged by though? I'm greatly encouraged by the fact these guys ended up getting it in the end. So I guess the question remains, will we get it? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? This morning, I want to ask you to think about your motives for doing what you do. Is life about you? Is church about you? Is family about you? If so, I want you to see that ultimately, you will lose. You can gain the pats on the back of everybody around you, but the fact remains that the Bible says God opposes the proud but gives His grace to the humble. I want to specify some ways that you can humble yourself. Most importantly, you can humble yourself when it you can humble yourself before God when it comes to salvation. You can think all day long that you're good enough to make it to heaven the way you are. And if you persist in thinking that way, you will one day be shoveled out into a Christless eternity and it will be forever too late. Forever too late. Humble yourself before God. Be like the publican who would not even lift his eyes toward God, but he beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you need to make that decision this morning? Do you need to humble yourself before God? Maybe this morning you'd know that, you know what? Uh, No doubt in my mind, my name is on a church roll. I come to church. Well, I've even entered through the baptismal waters. But in your heart of hearts, you know that there has never been a time that you have ever been born again. You've never been converted. Religious, but not converted. Jesus told a religious man, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again... He shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And you know that you've never been changed from the inside out. You see, religion tries to impose things on us from the outside in. That's that's why it doesn't work. Christianity, on the other hand, transforms people from the inside out. The Old Testament prophet spoke of God taking out a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, a new heart. Have you ever had that experience? Has your life ever been changed? Have you been born again to where you're a new creation in Christ? If not, humble yourself before God and say, God, would you do that in my heart?
I want to be converted. I want to be born again. Would you do that in my heart? If that's your honest prayer, just see what God does in your heart. Maybe at some time in the past you've made that decision. You've been saved, but you've never told anybody. I'm going to ask you to step out of the pew, come down the aisle closest to you in a few minutes, and confess Christ before men. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Bible says, If we confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you have never told anybody that you've turned your life over to Christ. Bible says we're supposed to do that. You need to tell your family and your friends. They need to know where you stand. You need to tell your church. And then, of course, you're baptized to identify with Christ. And, and that, too, is an expression of your faith in Christ. It doesn't save you. It's the outward expression, the testimony. Will you humble yourself before Christ and confess Him before men? I'm going to ask you to do that. If you're a believer, will you humble yourself before Him when it comes to service? Don't just look for those places to serve that are the most visible. Be willing to have coal dust on your face if needed. There's no harmony and therefore no music in the church unless people play not only first chair but second and third chair too. Humble yourself when it comes to reward. Understand you may never be recognized on this earth for your service. But God is a perfect record keeper. The Bible says he keeps books. And one day at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that's the place where you want to receive the rewards and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, has pride, jealousy, envy, competition, selfish ambition caused division in your life? Maybe you have just about destroyed your marriage because of that. Maybe you've destroyed or damaged severely work relationships because of the same. Why not ask God to give you strength to begin this week repairing some of those breaches in the wall? And asking God to give you a heart not to be served, but rather the ambition to serve. Father, work in the hearts of your people right now as only your Holy Spirit can. I think of that invitation given in the book of Revelation over and over again. He who hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Father, right now I pray that we would be all ears, that you would speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Humble yourself before God, make your faith in Him public, come forward. Confess him before men. The altar's open.
if maybe a lack of humility or service has caused some damage in your life in some area. Why not on your knees before God get that right? Maybe you're not serving unless it's visible and you need to say, Oh God, change my heart in that. You be the first to come. You might encourage somebody else to make a public response.